Welcome to Practical Christian Living. You know, the Bible says, who has been God's counselor? The answer to that is I've been God's counselor and you've probably been God's counselor because when we pray, we'll tell God what our problems are and then we'll give him our preferred solutions. Would you do it this way or perhaps that way or perhaps this way? This is what I want you to do. And sometimes God chooses a completely different way to do it. And I think that's a better, I think that's a better plan. Sometimes we might think we have the perfect solution to the problem going on in our lives, forgetting that God knows better. The Bible says God's ways are as far above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. Today on Practical Christian Living, we're talking about prayer and how to trust God to do what He's famous for. We're in John chapter 11, and we're talking about Lazarus. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Lord, we turn to your word. We now want to hear what you would say to us. We open up our hearts and we open up our minds. And Lord, we think about difficulties and hardships that we face in our lives and why you might not do what we want you to do. And we pray that we would have an understanding and we would not evaluate your love through our circumstances, but we would evaluate our circumstances through your love. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today in our study, we see a passage that helps us understand why God answers some of our prayers in a different way. It is an example of how God uses difficulties, how God uses struggles to work out the good in our lives. There was a happy little family that lived in a small village close to Jerusalem. Three brothers and sisters, one brother and two sisters, making three, living in a house most likely left to them by their parents. These three brothers and sisters had become friends with Jesus. In fact, they had become close friends, as we're going to see, with him. And he was fond of them. In fact, the Bible says of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that Jesus loved them. The word that is used there is the word phileo which is fondness, friend, a friendship love. Jesus was fond. And also, when they send a message, they say the one that you love, and that's Lazarus, and they use the word agape. You love Lazarus with the agape love. And then it says, then John writes, Jesus was extremely fond of friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So they had this relationship with Jesus. However, the fact that they were close friends with him and that Jesus had this fondness for them did not insulate them from difficulties and hardships. In fact, a sickness hit their home and the sickness led to death in spite of them asking Jesus to do something. And we see, we get an inside look in this passage of what's taking place. Now, we're not going to cover the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, and that's a spoiler alert. You now know he is resurrected. Um, goes all the way through 1 through 44. We're only going to cover 16 verses today. We're going to look at Jesus interacting with his disciples about going and helping it, whether or not he will go and help. Lazarus isn't the only one that Jesus rose from the dead. There was a little girl, remember, and a ruler came to him and Jesus went to his house and he took that little girl by the hand and said, Talitha kumi. But the little girl had only recently passed away, a matter of maybe an hour or two. 
because as they were going to his house, he got a message that the little girl had died. And then Jesus went in, drove out the mourners and, and raised this little girl from the dead. You also remember that Jesus ran into a funeral procession. What happens when the Messiah, God in the flesh, runs into a funeral procession? He rose the young man from the dead, but because they buried on the same day in the Middle East, because of the climate, because the, the, their embalming practices were different, and so he would have only have died maybe earlier that day or perhaps the night before, but he hadn't been dead for that long. Well, Lazarus is going to be dead for four days. He's not mostly dead. He's all dead, right? He makes sure, he makes sure that there can be no question. In fact, this is the crowning miracle of Jesus. It's right before the last week of his life. It's right before the triumphant entry that he does this miracle. We pick it up in verse 1 of John chapter 11. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The little town of Bethany was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You have the Temple Mount, then you've got the Kidron Valley, Jesus crossed from the Temple Mount down to the Kidron Valley on the night that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. On the lower part of the Mount of Olives, you've got the Garden of Gethsemane. Once you go over that hill on the top, you come to where the little village of Bethany was. So they're very close to Jerusalem. And Lazarus was, was sick. Sickness had, had hit their lives. Maybe they thought they weren't insulated because it was in their house that Jesus stayed when he went to Jerusalem. They had taken care of him. They had fed him. They had had him over to their house. They were close. And maybe they thought this could never happen, but a severe sickness struck Lazarus. And so it says that this is the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And then it tells us who this Mary is. It is the Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. They have to tell you which Mary it is because there's so many Marys. All right. It's like when I was a kid and the name Robert. Still to this day, I'll meet people. Hi, I'm Robert. I'm Bob. I'm Bob. I'm Robert. I'm Robbie. It's like a lot of us. But in the Bible, there were a lot of Marys. And this hasn't happened yet. She hasn't anointed Jesus's feet yet. But John writing this tells us this is this Mary. So you know which Mary it is. It says in verse three, therefore, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. That word for love there is that word agape. I love that she doesn't try to counsel God. They just simply send a message. The one you love is sick, believing that God will do the right thing. I think sometimes in prayer, you know, the Bible says, who has been God's counselor? The answer to that is I've been God's counselor and you've probably been God's counselor because when we pray, we'll tell God what our problems are and then we'll give him our preferred solutions. Would you do it this way or perhaps that way or perhaps this way? This is what I want you to do. And sometimes God chooses a completely different way to do it. And I think that's a better, I think that's a better plan. I think it's better to step back and go, you're God, you love me, you have my best in mind, you know what you want to do. And so we have this problem and I'm just going to leave it there. Lord, I'm asking you to help. However you want to intervene, however you want to help. Now, I don't know if I've really grown in that or not. I still have a tendency to tell God how we should do it. I've got my ideas of how God should meet the need. So he loves Lazarus and Lazarus got sick. That's a pretty incredible thing, isn't it? He loves Lazarus and Lazarus got sick. Again, just because 
he loves us doesn't mean we won't have difficulties and problems. But there are always people who will say that, isn't there? There are always people who will say, when, when my late wife passed away, uh, now, well, 2012, I had, I had people come up and say things that were incredibly rude. In fact, I couldn't believe how rude they were. Sometimes, unfortunately, you know, we Christians are supposed to walk in love and really care for one another. Unfortunately, sometimes the things that we say, when you're dealing with someone who has a loss, be careful what you say. So here I am grieving. I've lost my wife and somebody comes to me and says, um, you know, you're the man of the house. You're, you are the leader. If you didn't, you have something wrong in your life. Otherwise, your wife wouldn't have passed away. Thanks for sharing. I really appreciate it. Thanks for twisting the knife in there a little bit more. I really, really appreciate that. Somebody else told me that she must have had some hidden sin in her life. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gotten cancer. You know what kind of arrogance is in those statements? Here's the arrogance that's in it. You're making that statement and you're healthy. You're not sick. You don't have anything wrong with you. And you're saying you had sin in your life or your wife had sin in her life, but I don't. If you were more like me, then it would have never have happened to you. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous to judge people in that way. It's dangerous to have that kind of hubris before God instead of humbling yourself and maybe coming alongside of somebody that's hurting and say, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. I'm praying for you. You know, in the midst of my grief, I found that that was the most helpful. There's obviously this whole teaching that, that if you really have enough faith or if you really have things right with God, then you won't be sick. This is Job's comforters. That's what they did. Job's comforters told Job, come on, tell us, you must have done something wrong. Really bad things happened to Job. And finally, Job says to them, miserable comforters are you all. And the same is true with this faith movement teaching that God wants you rich or God wants you healthy. And if you're not healthy, if you're not rich, there's something wrong in your life. When the, the Bible tells us that if anybody in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if anybody is teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. Don't sit under that teaching. But godliness with contentment is great gain. If we're godly and we're content with what we have, there is great gain there. It's obviously not about becoming rich. It's such a twisting of the scriptures to be able to do that. However, they had never expected that this would happen. They had felt like there was some protection and that, that Jesus loved them. And so he was going to take care of it. Jesus must have also been expressing his love when you think about it. I think he's pretty good at that now. Some of us might not feel like God really loves us, but the Bible says that God's love was revealed and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We're told in Romans chapter 8 over and over again that God is on our side. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? But like Mary and Martha here, it's not just that God loved them, agape love, I'm committed to you, so I love you. But he's also fond of you. Sometimes we feel like God has to love me, right? He's God, he's full of love, he has to love me. But I don't think God likes me. You know, like God say to, to me, Robert, there's just something about you I don't like. I love you. There's something about you I don't like. And sometimes we feel like that. But the truth is, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, God loves you and God loves you. Abraham was God's friend. What a thing. But Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I now call you my friends. And he entered into that relationship with them. And I believe that God does that the same with us as well. We can have that friendship relationship with Jesus. 
Now, in verse 4, it says, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death because he knows the beginning from the end. And even though Lazarus does die, he knows what he's going to do. And so he tells his disciples, this sickness isn't unto death, but for the glory of God. Now, that's a hard lesson to hear when you're going through difficulties. That you, especially in extreme difficulty, especially if you're facing death or someone close to you has died. That, that God's plan is that we would glorify him in our lives and in our deaths. And you and I have an appointed time. Well, we can't, I believe that we, won't, we cannot go, we're invincible before our time. There's only one way that we're not invincible. The Bible says it's appointed once for man to die. The only way you're not invincible is if you tempt God. If you go, well, I'm invincible. I'm going to go stand in front of a semi. And God says, guess what? You moved your appointment up. You had an appointment, but you just moved it up by tempting me. That's what Jesus meant when the enemy took him to the high peak of the temple and said, throw yourself down. It says that he will catch you and you won't dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, yes, but it also says thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. So you and I, we know that our lives are in his hands and that we'll go when it is our time. And, you know, <laughs> when we talk about how long we want to live or what our plans are, I, I don't want to be here any longer than God has a plan for me. I want my appointed time. And sometimes we think that, that well, someone dies young. We say they died so young but they had their lives. And when we get into eternity, whether someone died in their 30s like James, the brother of John, or in their 80s or 90s like John did, that they both lived their lives and now they are in eternity. Because we're on earth, that's such a hard thing for us to see and a hard thing for us to reflect upon. But it's good for us to do it now. So he says, the sickness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God. And everything that we do is for God to be glorified. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to have problems. We're all going to have difficulties. You say, Robert, that's not why I came to church. I wanted you to tell me how great life was going to be. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. And when we do, hey, everybody's going to have them. Everybody's going to die of something. There's going to be a cause of everyone's death. And when we have those difficulties, we say, Lord, be glorified in it. Because the alternative would be that difficulties would happen to us and God would not be glorified. We want God lifted up and we want God glorified. And then he says that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is one of the rare times Jesus very rarely revealed himself as the Son of God. But here he refers to himself not as the common Son of Man that he uses all of the time, but as the Son of God. And what you need to know about those two statements, Son of Man and Son of God, is they're both statements of deity. In Daniel chapter 7, you have the Ancient of Days sitting upon thrones, and the Son of Man comes in clouds and joins the Ancient of Days and sits down in a throne next to him and is given dominion and power and glory forever. Do you remember when Jesus was standing before Caiaphas, the high priest? And Caiaphas said, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say, but from here on out, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory and given dominion and power and glory. And, and Caiaphas tore his clothes. What further need do we have of a trial? This man has committed blasphemy. Why? Because he knew Daniel 7 well. We ought to know it well, by the way. 
That's one of the chapters that if you don't know that chapter, you ought to go read that chapter because it's pretty amazing. And every time, once you understand that chapter and know it, every time you're reading the New Testament and you read the word son of man, it means something even more powerful to you. But here Jesus mentions himself as the son of God. Psalms chapter two says, do you know God? Do you know the name of his son? Later on, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. And we know that judgment has been given over to the Son of God. And so he says this sickness is to glorify God and it's to glorify the Son of God through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. There's our phileo word. There's our, our, our fond of, friendship word. We get the city of Philadelphia from this word. The first one was Jesus, the one you agape, the one you love uncommittedly is sick. But now it says, and this is John telling us, that he loved these guys. I had said earlier that Jesus is, that God is pretty good at showing us love in the Bible. If we understand the scriptures, we understand that God loves us. I think he was to them as well. He must have said to them, I love you. He must have said to, to Lazarus, I love you, for them to be so confident. He must have shown his affection and his fondness that they knew for sure that he loved them. And here he says that he was their friends. So he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place he was. Now that doesn't make any sense to us. From a human perspective, if I hear that I can help someone and, and they're sick and ready to die, I'm on my way. Jesus was a day away from where they were. It took them a day to get there and say that he was sick. It took him, he stayed for two more days the earliest he could have returned was four days after Lazarus had died. That's pretty amazing. Jesus stays for two more days. Sometimes God does things that are just really, in reality, they're just appalling to us because we have a different plan, because we're on a different schedule. We, we want God to move now, but God's never late. There's no such thing as God's delay. Every once in a while, you'll read a message on this particular passage and it's God's delays of love is the title that people like to use. God's delays of love. He loves them so he delayed. But really, that's a misnomer. Not that I'm picking on other people's sermon titles. But there are no delays with God. God's always on time. It's just you're early. You're just like, God, you need you to move now. And God's like, eh, I'll be there on time. It'll be exactly when it is the right time to do it. So he stayed for two more days in the place where he was. Then in verse 7, And after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Now, now Judea is where Jerusalem is. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks at the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, this is an ongoing teaching that Jesus has had in all of the, of the Gospels. What he's saying is, it's time to work, work. It'll be time in the darkness soon enough, it'll be time for you to sleep. Work while it's light so you can see what you're doing. And so let me ask you, what was Jesus saying to us? Is it light now or is it dark? Is it time for us to do the work or is it time to us to take a break? The time for us to take a break will come, but it's time now for us to do the work. And that's what Jesus is saying. 
It's time now for me to go and do the work that God has called me to do. And I must do this while it is daylight. And then in verse 11, he says, these things he said. And after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. All through the New Testament, Jesus used it. The disciples used it when a Christian died, used the term sleep. I think we should return to it. I think that we should say when one of our family members dies, they've gone to sleep because they will awake again in our presence at the resurrection. And to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So they are there now. When you, when you die, you don't go to sleep until the resurrection. You are in his presence immediately. And they will look upon him and their faces will be, will be glorified as they are standing in the presence of God. And so he says to them, Lazarus sleeps. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Notice that again, the, the term phileo. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I'm going that I can wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Therefore, Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And get this, and I'm glad for your sake. Boy, that's something we thought we'd never hear. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. He's going to give them such a miracle that this will carry them throughout the rest of their lives. One of the evidence that Christianity is true is that these 12 men went out and preached the gospel throughout the world. They were martyred and they stuck to their story. The idea is that out of 12 men, if, the, if it wasn't true, they're being tortured. All of them were tortured. John didn't die from his torturing, but he was still tortured. Out of the 12 men, one of them would have broke, at least one of them. Okay, we made it up. Let me tell you where his body is. But these guys didn't. They endured suffering and hardship and they brought the gospel around the world in their lifetime. The gospel was taken all around the world in their lifetime. And Jesus says, I want you to see this so you believe. And he became, because the fact that Lazarus was dead was throughout all of Jerusalem. And many of the leaders knew Lazarus. And when Lazarus rises from the dead, they, they see it, but they can't believe. They plan on killing Lazarus as if Jesus couldn't rise up from the dead again. But they, that's what they plan on. They are so rooted and grounded in their disbelief that even when someone who's been dead for four days rises from the dead, they still do not believe. I think there are people like that today. We live in a time that God doesn't give us extreme evidence. We don't have overwhelming evidence. We have reasonable evidence in the scriptures. We have the historical record. We have archaeology records. We have geographical uh, accounts in the scriptures that are all true. We have an incredible accuracy, even some scientific things that are brought up in the scriptures that are accurate. This all, and we have prophecy in the Bible that has been fulfilled. And these all are reasonable enough for us to say, you know what I believe. I'm going to choose to believe in him. But we are saved by believing. We are not saved by certainty. Now, in case you've lost why I'm talking about this, look at what Jesus says again. Because I feel like maybe some people are going, why is he talking about this? Look at it again. He says at the end of verse 14, or in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. 
He's giving them this incredible sign so that they will believe. I think it's pretty crazy too that Thomas is here. We're told in a minute that Thomas is there. And Thomas has trouble believing the resurrection of Jesus, even after he was given this great sign. Talk about a skeptic. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.